morning. Our reading is from 2 Kings, chapter 6, and we're now in verses 8 to 23. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid prophet answered those who are with us are more than those who are with them and Elisha prayed open his eyes Lord so that he may see then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha as the enemy came down toward him Elisha prayed to the Lord strike this army with blindness so he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. morning. If you want to know who someone is, the best way to find out, the best way to get there is to watch what they do. Sometimes that's going to show you that someone isn't quite what they claim to be. This might be a boy thing, uh, but growing up I had a number of acquaintances who would tell me very proudly how good they were at running, at sports, at video games, at basically anything I ever mentioned. Much better than me, certainly. But Every so often, when I got them over the chessboard, or I got them in a race, I'm not very fast, actually, so it wasn't generally a race, they didn't quite measure up. What they did didn't stack up to what they claimed to be. Equally, there are some people who are the other way round. Maybe they're very modest. Or maybe they genuinely don't know how good they are at a thing. They never tell you about their talent, or how supportive they are, or how charitable they are, or how loyal they are. 
but it's obvious to everyone else, isn't it? We all know people like that. We can see how good they are because we're watching what they do. There are lots of different reasons why we study different books of the Old Testament, but when it comes to a passage like this one, the key reason is that it's a record of things that actually aren't really about Elisha at all. They aren't really about the Arameans at all. Um, the things in this morning's passage, so that's my original title, but actually I think the next title would be a better one. The things in this morning's passage are mostly things that God does. And just like with our friends, just like with our acquaintances at school, when we see what God does, it shows us who God is. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through the passage and we're going to pick out the things that God does. And we're going to look at what they mean. And then at the end, we're going to have a think about if that's who God is and if that's who he still is, what should that mean for us? So first... Uh, God shows us, most obviously, that he protects his people. Sorry. So verse 8 sets the scene. Uh, there's a war going on between Israel and Aram, uh, which was a neighboring kingdom slightly to the northeast. This clearly isn't a full-scale conflict. You haven't got massed armies fighting on a plane somewhere. It's a sort of ongoing state of hostility between the two states. We know that the Arameans send raiders into Israel from time to time. We heard last week that an Israelite girl ended up as a slave in the household of the Aramean general Naaman um, as a result of one of those raids. But we also heard that the king of Aram was happy to send one of his generals into Israel for healing, which is not what you do if you're in all-out war with someone. Actually, a really good illustration of how things were at this time is that the king of Aram wrote a really nice, polite letter to the king of Israel, asking, please, can you arrange for Naaman to be healed? But when Joram, the king of Israel, got the letter, what did he think? He immediately thought it was a trap. He immediately thought he was being set up to fail, and that when he failed, that would give the king of Aram a good excuse to step up the fight. Actually, this week's passage suggests that Joram may have been onto something, Look at verse 8 with me. The king of Aram decides to set up his camp in such and such a place. So, verse 9, Elisha sends warnings to Joram. This is where the Arameans are going to be. You should steer clear of there. Verse 10, the king listens. They don't always. And steers well clear of those places. In verse 11, then, it all becomes clear. You can see the frustration. You can see the fury of the king of Aram here. And actually, it hasn't been told to us until this point, but this makes it clear, right? This wasn't just a, a nice camping trip that he was going on. It wasn't just a raid, and he logistically thought, well, I'll, I'll camp there. No, he's angry because he's setting out to capture Joram. That's what he's doing. And Elisha is frustrating him. God is frustrating him. God is telling Elisha, tell the king not to go there. Tell the king to avoid capture. So that's the first element of God's protection that we see in the passage. Actually, in this whole period of Israel's history, the wrong men are the kings of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. They didn't accept God's plan for who should be the king. Various people and various families have tried to set themselves up as important and as rulers. And that's why the kingdom is, is split in the first place, and actually it, it gets even worse from there. Joram is 
is not the worst of these kings. There's a little review of him early on in Two Kings, which says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. It's a bit of a mixed bag, right? Not a great school report, C+, especially when you know that his father and mother were Ahab and Jezebel, who were particularly bad um, and sort of bywords for what a bad ruler does. Being better than them isn't hard. So Joram's certainly not a good king, but he is the king. If he were to be captured by Aram as part of Aram's war with Israel, that would matter. Probably that means that Aram wins the war. Probably that means that they take over at least some of Israel's territory. Probably that means that they rule over at least some of God's people. So when God steps in, yes, he's protecting Joram, but by doing that, he's protecting his people more generally. He's preserving them in the war. And the protection here is quiet, it's private, it's subtle. God sends Elisha visions or some other way of communicating this information about where Aram is lying in wait so that Joram can avoid being captured. And then Elisha passes that on privately. So that's our first protection. Actually, that protection is so subtle that the king of Aram has no idea that it's happening, right? Um, In fact, he assumes that there's a traitor in the ranks. He assumes that somebody in his high command, one of his generals, is secretly loyal to Israel and passing this information on. It's the only way that he could um, understand that this could be happening. But no, say the officers in verse 12, it's not them, it's Elisha. Elisha the prophet somehow knows the king's most private conversations. And side note, a general in the Aramean army somehow knows that Elisha the prophet somehow knows the king's most private conversations. So verse 13, um, the king of Aram realizes that if he wants to win a war against Israel, he's going to have to get rid of Elisha. You can't fight an enemy who knows all of your plans, right? That's obvious. So if it's Elisha who knows, then Elisha has to go. So he sends his men, uh, and they track Elisha down in the town of Dothan. Verse 14, the king of Aram sends an army to surround the city. This is a serious army. We don't know how big it was necessarily. But the writer emphasizes it's got horses and chariots, which is pretty much the most advanced military technology available at the time. Dothan isn't a big military town. Uh, It's a small town just to the northeast of Samaria, relatively close to the border with Aram. It's not fortified, doesn't have a garrison, doesn't have a standing army. So in verse 15, when Elisha's servant wakes up and sees this army surrounding the city, it's quite understandable that he panics, right? The town of Dothan is not equipped to fight the Aramean army. It's going to be a walkover. But Elisha doesn't panic. Elisha is totally calm. In fact, verse 16, he tells his servant not to be afraid because there are more people with him. There are more people backing up Elisha and his servant than there are in the Aramean army. Now, let me say, um, as I've been preparing this sermon, I've had a particular song going around in my head. There's a phrase in this part of the passage. If you're my age or older, you probably know what that song is. I'm going to avoid saying that particular phrase, or I'm going to try. If I do say it, please forgive me, and please, whatever else you do, don't hum it. (laughs) 
Anyway, um, so there's a big army outside Dothan. Elisha says, not to worry, the army protecting him is bigger, but his servant can't see it. His servant doesn't understand. And then verse 17, Elisha prays that God will open his servant's eyes. And when he does, the servant now can see it. He can see the army of the Lord all around the town. As big as Aram's army is, God's is bigger. The hills are full of them. As fearsome as Aram's army is, with their horses and chariots, well, God's army has them too. And in God's army, they're made of fire, which feels like a a tactical advantage. So Elisha and his servants are completely protected. They're backed up by a bigger and stronger and more impressive army than the one that has come to get them. But it wasn't obvious to Elisha's servant. He couldn't see it until Elisha prayed for him, until Elisha asked God to open not his physical eyes, we assume in this case, but his spiritual eyes. Elisha asked for his servant to be able to see the protection that was already there. That didn't make the army come. The army was there from the start. That's why Elisha was so calm. But Elisha asked for his servant to be able to see, to be able to understand God's protection. And this protection isn't subtle. This isn't a vision that God's giving to Elisha in the night. This is a full-scale army, complete with flaming vehicles, ready to defend the prophet. It's as much as they need. It's maybe more than they need to be completely protected. So that's our first point this morning. That's the first thing that God shows us by his actions here. He will protect his people. The second thing that God shows us in his passage uh, is that he wins but not always in the way that we might expect. There we are in in Dothan still, two mighty armies ready for battle, one here, one there. We've all seen the movie. We know how this goes, right? The army of Aram starts to creep forward. Verse 18, uh, that's where we are. So this is the part where Elisha gives some sort of speech. This is the part where the music starts to swell. This is the part where maybe somebody throws a spear or something and there's that moment of... And then they charge. Fight to the death, right? Winner takes all. Winner gets the profit. That's not what happens, is it, right? There's no battle. The army of the Lord doesn't move at all, so far as we know. Instead, Elisha prays again. And the Aramean army is struck with blindness. Now, last week we said that Naaman's disease, which we're reading as leprosy, probably wasn't Leprosy, as we would understand that word today, the word we're translating as blindness may or may not literally mean that they couldn't see a thing. Some Bible scholars think it means that they could see things, but they couldn't recognize what they were. Uh, It's a medical condition called agnosia. Um, But of course, no less of a miracle if an entire army is suddenly struck with that. However it is, however it happens, the army doesn't understand, doesn't recognize that the person they're speaking with is Elisha. They don't understand, they don't recognize when he's leading them a few kilometers down the road that they're being taken into Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. And so, verse 19, Elisha's able to lead this army into a trap of his own. Now let's put the brakes on just for a second, because I'm aware that this passage that we've just read is quite challenging. It's quite difficult for us to believe. 
So let's remember something that Sam said a couple of weeks ago. If we believe that God made the world, then we should also be able to believe that he can do literally anything he wants in the world. And I think there's something about how we're wired as humans. There's something about the scale of it, maybe, that actually makes it harder for us to believe this than to believe creation. Because we're around people all the time. We're around people right now. We spend time with people. Most of us probably haven't ever seen one person struck blind. And probably no one here has seen an army struck blind all at once. So on some level, because we could imagine it, because we know it, we can see it almost in our heads, it feels harder to accept this than to accept something like the creation of the world, which is just so unimaginably massive that we kind of short-circuit and we think, okay, yeah, no, I, I, can, I can believe that. But actually, no. The point that Sam made a couple of weeks ago is completely right. If God made the world, if God made the rules for how everything works, if God designed every living thing, it's absolutely not logical at all to believe all of that, but then believe that God couldn't strike this army with blindness. It doesn't make sense. When you stop and think about it, it doesn't make sense. It's a much smaller thing to strike this army blind than it is to have created the army, the ground they're standing on, and every other thing in creation. It's a much smaller thing. So we ought to be able to believe this. So yes, so God strikes the army with blindness. Elisha leads them into a trap. And that is clearly a win for God's people. There was an army coming to kill the prophet, and it has failed. Elisha has demonstrated that God is superior over the Aramean army. But it didn't come the way we expected, did it? Can you imagine being Elisha's servant that morning? You wake up, you see this army massed around Dothan, and you're terrified. Then the boss says, don't worry, we've got a bigger army on our side. You look around, you can't see it. Then he prays, and then you see it. And suddenly, that makes sense. Now I get it. Now I get it. There's the bad guys. There's the good guys. I know what's going to happen. I'm absolutely certain what's going to happen. And then it goes off in a completely different way. The way that God had planned to win that day was not the way that was obvious to Elisha's servant. It was not the way that would have been obvious to any one of us in that position, seeing the army of the Lord. But that is the way that God planned to win, as unexpected as it was. And that brings us to our third point. God had to win that way because God wants to show mercy. Verse 20, God opens the eyes of the Aramean army. They were expecting to have been led to Elisha, and I guess they were, but not quite in the way that they wanted. Suddenly they see or suddenly they understand where they are. And they realize they're in the middle of Samaria. That's a very different proposition to what they'd set out for. Not some small town in the countryside, not catching the prophet as he's, as he's in the wilderness. This is Israel's capital. This is a fortified city. This is the place where the king lives. And the king, not surprisingly, keeps some fighting men around. The tables have turned for the Arameans at this point. They thought they were going to kill Elisha. But instead, they've been caught. They're completely in the hands of a nation with whom they're at war. 
And of course, if the Arameans realize it, then the Israelites will too. Verse 21, we see King Joram, uh, he saw that he had the, the Arameans in his power, and he's very keen uh, to kill them, isn't he? Shall I kill them? Shall, shall I? Should I? And let's not gloss over it. There are plenty of times in the Old Testament when God says, kill those people, kill the enemy. When Israel arrives in the Holy Land, most famously, they're very specifically told to go in and kill everyone they find there, everyone. What's held against them, what's held as their sin, their failure, is that they leave some alive. So that is a command that God could give. And we know Israel and Aram are in conflict. So it's easy for us to look at this and and think that Joram's being unusually bloodthirsty. It's certainly not the sort of thing you'd expect to find God's people doing today. But it's not obviously the wrong move. It's not as outrageous a a suggestion as it might seem to us today. However, it is still the wrong move. Verse 22. Elisha says that even though God has given this army into your hands, this is not the situation where you press home your advantage. This is not like meeting them in battle. Instead, this is like prisoners of war. This is like captives. And God is clear that you treat captives well. He always has been. So you give them food and water, and then in this case, you send them back to their master. And in fact, in verse 23, there must have been some further instruction. The captured army are given a feast, not just the basics. So why is that God's plan? Well, we can speculate a little bit. We see in verse 23, the raids did stop. Uh, Although, spoilers for, for some of the rest of this series, the war with Aaron will come back. Ultimately, though, Israel doesn't lose that war. Ultimately, Israel does last through the aggression of Aram. And maybe this is one of the reasons why. More importantly for us, this is part of a consistent pattern in this part of two kings where God is showing mercy to his enemies. Last week, God healed Naaman of a skin disease that could not otherwise be cured. This week, an entire army is captured, is treated well, is thrown a feast and released Back to Aram. God's enemies, people who are at war with Israel, get into positions where they are absolutely dependent on God. And they can't reasonably expect anything here. Naaman can't expect a cure, can't demand it. This army surely expects to be killed, or at the very least thrown into prison. But instead, they're given mercy, and not just the bare minimum. They're not just being spared their lives and sent home, they're not just being cured, they're being given generosity, they're being thrown a feast, the prophet's turning down payment, they're being given abundance and excess, and that's God's mercy. He doesn't just spare his enemies, he invites them to the feast. And that's my third thing, um, that we can learn about God from what he does in this passage. So, I said that we would go through, we'd pick out the items, and then we'd think about what they mean for us. So we've seen God showing his protection, showing he wins, but in unexpected ways, and showing his mercy. These are things that repeat throughout the Bible because they're the character of God. We could pick out hundreds of examples, 
uh, from various points. Let's just quickly look at one from the life of Jesus, if we could put up the, the passage from Matthew there. That's the one. This is a passage from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas shows up with an armed crowd, and they're going to arrest him. They're going to take him away. They're going to try him, and they're going to execute him. That's where this is going after this passage. So Peter draws his sword to try and fight them off. Look at verse 53. Jesus says no. Jesus knows that God protects his people. God would have sent the army, maybe the same army, to protect Jesus if Jesus had asked. Jesus has absolute assurance that that protection is available to him. So that's our first point, but verse 54, God's decided to win this one in a different way. He could have sent the army. He could have conquered Rome. He could have installed Jesus as the perennial emperor. But that's not the way that God chooses to win. The way that God chooses to win is to allow Jesus to be arrested, to allow Jesus to be executed so that he can go to the cross. And then... The third point, the cross, it's the ultimate expression of God's mercy. The cross is what makes a right relationship with God available to everyone. The cross is the invitation that God gives to his enemies, not just to spare their lives, but to invite them to the feast. So you can pick those elements out of so much of the Bible, and that story is a good illustration of them. So let's think about some of the ways we might apply these lessons in our lives uh, and we're going to do these in reverse order. So we're going to start with God shows mercy. He loves to show mercy. The Aramean army was coming to kill his prophet, and they ended up at a party thrown in their honor. That same mercy is in the invitation that he makes to everyone today. Everyone. There is nobody who is such an enemy of God that God doesn't want to show them mercy. There is nobody who has offended God so deeply that they can't get right with him if they accept the offer that Jesus makes. Maybe you need to hear that this morning to think about somebody you know in a different light. Maybe there's somebody you've privately thought to yourself is too far gone, absolutely unsavable. God wants to show them mercy. Maybe you need to hear that for yourself. Maybe you need to be reassured that the mistakes you've made in your own life haven't blown it with God. Well, if you've accepted his invitation, God shows you mercy. You are going to the feast. Or maybe you need to hear that because it's a commitment you haven't made for yourself. Maybe you, on some level, don't think that God could be willing to forgive you to deal with somebody like you and the things that you've done. So again, God wants to show you mercy, if you want it. God threw a feast for an army that set out to kill his prophet. Every Christian there's ever been, through all of history, was God's enemy, until they weren't. Until they accepted that invitation. Until they accepted his mercy. And you can do that too. In the other points, I think there's huge encouragement for us this morning. It can be hard to see the shape of God's plan when we're in the middle of it. Sometimes it seems blindingly obvious to us how something ought to go. Sometimes it seems really clear what God has planned for us, and then it doesn't happen. Something else pops up. 
something that we think will happen doesn't happen, it can be incredibly frustrating. We can feel like we're doing the wrong thing, can't we? We can feel like God's plan has gone off the rails. But that's why it's so encouraging to be reminded that God's wins don't always look like we think they will. It must have been completely obvious to Elisha's servant that God's army was about to win a huge battle. It must have been really clear to Peter that the disciples were about to fight off this arresting force. But no, God went a completely different way with it. God worked out his plan, not our plan. It's not always the thing that's obvious to us. And that's going to happen in our lives. Sometimes what we think is obvious will be the wrong answer. And when that happens, let's think about Elisha's servant and remember, God can win in ways that we don't expect. And finally, let's remember that God does protect his people. That doesn't mean that we'll be safe from everything. It doesn't mean that we'll never suffer. Joram was protected in this passage, but eventually he was assassinated. Israel was protected in the war against Aram, but eventually was conquered by Assyria because that was what God's plan required. So when God's plan needs us to suffer, we will. But when that's not part of God's plan, we will be protected. God will protect his people to do his work. We've seen it in two ways, subtle and loud. More importantly than anything that happens in this life, our ultimate protection is absolutely certain. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. The Bible says that our lives, our lives, if we've accepted the invitation, are hidden now with Christ in God. No matter what happens to us now, we are ultimately protected for eternity. So when we're scared, when we're worried about doing God's work, when we're daunted by what the future might hold for us, let's think of Elisha and his servant. Let's think of the army of God stood around, ready to protect both of them. The one who could see it was calm, but the one who couldn't was panicked. So perhaps our prayer, uh, when we're feeling unprotected, when we're feeling scared, should be the same as Elisha's was, that God will open our eyes to the protection that he provides for us. Let's pray. Mighty and glorious God, who protects his people so richly. We pray that uh, we would remember your protection. God of victory, who wins in ways that might not be obvious to us. We pray that we would rest in the fact that you are working things out in your way. God of mercy, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us, for the mercy that you long to show to all of your enemies. We pray that we would take those truths with us into this week and that they would make us more effective witnesses for you. Amen.